So you're listening to a recording of Brendan's Property Branches. Every Monday morning we go online during the coronavirus period. So this morning you're going to hear from a number of specialists focused on the commercial sector, including Kirsty Darkin, Susie Carter. You've also got Alex Hearn and Daryl Norker. So enjoy the conversation. And remember, keep your Monday mornings free. Brendan's Property Branch. You can find more about Brendan's Property Branch through weekwinevents.com. So thank you for listening. And uh, if you're putting dates into your diary, Brendan's Property Branch resumes on the 4th of May, focus on the economy post-COVID-19, and specifically the property sector. Generally, somewhere between 6 and 10 units um, on a park and you know, I'm looking at asset management opportunities, so short leases, maybe you can add a new unit. And those will come in anywhere between the 900,000 and 2 million mark. And that's kind of the sweet spot, I think, um, for us as investors to be aiming at a you know, multi-unit. Don't just go for one unit, um, you know, always mitigate your risk. So those, that's where I think we are in industrial at the moment. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic, Kirsty. And that's a great contribution. There are a couple of uh, points that you made there, which I'm going to expand on. And we're also having a few questions come in. How it's going to work is keep your questions in. When I finish a round of questions with the panelists, I'll also put the questions uh, to the panelists. Now, it, it does actually work out that going to Daryl, now there's something that uh, Kirsty brought up, which is in terms of some of the industrial units that are being owned, people looking to release some of that and go and do a sale and leaseback. Now, the one thing that I do actually want to um, ask you, Daryl, to lead on is exactly what a sale and leaseback is for people that are just uh, joining us and what you're finding in terms of uh, funding these and, and, and releasing some capital for businesses to increase their cash flow. So just for the panelists, a couple of questions that have come in that I'll be looking for answers in the next round of questions or integrated is the yield looking that uh, people should look back in a sale and lease back and where do you find industrial uh, units but I will be addressing these as we go through so uh, Daryl are you there yes yes hello um yes they've some fantastic points there from um Susie and Kirsty. it's kind of got my brain whirring with uh, lots of things at the moment I'll try and make uh, cohesive for the purposes of this section but Sale and leaseback is, is pretty simple. It's effectively where the owner of a, a freehold or a leasehold property sells it to someone else, principally usually an investor, in return for um, a price and a lease where they, they get to remain in occupation of the property. So with, with residential, it's, um, it's a bit of a tarnished term because to do that on residential property is a regulated activity and very difficult to do now in practice. But on commercial, it's still, I wouldn't say common, but you do, you do see it come up um, from time to time. And from the business's perspective, they're, they're not looking at um, the money stored in that property on a kind of yield or development angle basis like a property person would. They're literally looking at that money and saying, okay, if this releases a million pounds to me, if I put that into my business, how much can I grow my business for? And then what's that worth to me in terms of um, net profit and EBITDA? So that's why that's kind of a, a live issue, particularly for, for growing businesses. Then just kind of coming on to the market in general. So I kind of cast my mind back to what feels like an eternity now, but around about a year ago, um, I did a very large piece of work um, at Shawbrook where we, we relaunched our entire commercial investment mortgage range. And that was underpinned by kind of stacks of research, 
much of it from CBRE, if I'm honest. Um, it's one of the main sources for uh, commercial property data. And I'll just kind of share a couple of numbers on this. So we looked at industrial, we looked at retail, and we looked at office as the three main commercial property sectors. And the outlook for, for industrial was the most positive. So the most pessimistic forecast was that that sector grows by 2% over the next five years. And the most optimistic was that that sector grows, grows by 6% over the next five years. And most of the data points were more on the optimistic end of the scale for industrial. Retail, on the other hand, the most optimistic was flat, basically. And the most pessimistic was a decline in values by 6%. So I've always kind of had in my mind that the, the kind of headline long-term fundamentals for industrial look to be a bit stronger than for, than for the other commercial property sectors. The reason why I don't think it gets as much traction within the kind of smaller investor and developer market, which is kind of very much where I've always been, is just because there's, I think, a perception that what industrial means is huge Amazon warehouses or huge warehouses for Tesco and places like this. Now that is a really important part of the industrial market. And to be honest, that's driving most of those growth numbers and projections that I've just mentioned because it's bigger and it's more visible. But then there's this whole kind of other micro market. So you think about, you know, your little e-commerce business that someone sets up in their home, it gets, grows, does really well, and they need to go and get a place to, to store stuff and to post things out from. Think about your MOT garages. Um, think about kind of wholesalers who, who might be doing food, might be selling to restaurants, might be selling to convenience stores, all these kind of things that kind of crop up. Most of the industrial sector in my life is hidden in plain sight. It's, it's in towns, it's in cities, it's on the edges, um, and it's all around us all of the time, but it's kind of ignored. And I think that people will get more interested as they, they seek opportunities for, for long-term yield if they're, they're kind of home comfort sector is rocked in some way. So retail being a good example. And, and the other thing I've mentioned on industrial in terms of kind of tenant covenant strength, there'll be good ones, there'll be bad ones, like there are with all sorts of asset class. But most businesses that need industrial space tend to also need other forms of investment. So if you think about it, if you're a manufacturer, you also usually need some kind of machinery, some plant, you probably need some expertise in terms of people. All of that comes at quite a high cost. So they tend to be businesses where the owners are already quite financially invested. The property is just one part of a general mix of cash that they put into this business. And so therefore they're quite committed. You compare that to some of the retail stuff where you've got kind of pop-up shops with, you know, basically next to no startup cost because you don't need stock and you're kind of drop shipping everything and, you know, you can, you can hire people on minimum wage. It's a very different profile of commitment. And I always think that's important. And I've always focused on that when lending money, but I think it's very true when looking at um, tenant covenants for industrial too. Fantastic, Daryl. I, thought, I, I, think, I think one of the, the buzzwords that we'll take forward is profile of commitment. I, I think I put it in that way, in such a succinct way, and uh, looking at the opportunities in industrial. So there's one thing I just wanted to put to you, Daryl, just before we go into Alex, uh, who's, who's on the ground. I just want to make a comment that you see that this, this shock that's come through, a lot of um, the research, this has already been baked in because we were looking at the uncertainty around Brexit and the results that we have from Q1 in terms of the growth of industrial, although might be paused, industrial was actually storming, uh, storming in the first half of this year. Now, a question specifically for you, Daryl, before we move on is, um, this is from John Ray, and he says, how do you refinance all your cash with an industrial investment? 
I know I was coming back to the questions afterwards, but I'll, I'll have you start this. And please, Kirsty and Susie and Alex, if there's anything to add to any of the questions I've already answered, please bake that into your next reply. So I'll, I'll pause on you, Daryl, to answer this, then we'll move on to Alex. Yeah, perfect. I mean, that's a, that's a fantastic question. And the answer is that you, you can't do it in the way that you can do it with um, a kind of residential mixed-use property. So the general tactic for recycling all of your money out of a deal kind of instantly is you need to add tangible value to that property. So that property needs to be worth considerably more than all the costs of your effort in terms of buying it and refurbing it or converting it or adding planning or whatever it might be. So that's how that model works. But you can't really do that with industrial. So the fundamentals for industrial are different. You're going to have money left in the deal when you purchase it. But what you're trading off is long-term capital growth, potentially, and you're also trading off much higher than normal day one yields. So you're not going to be on a kind of 3 4% residential yield. If you kind of want secondary industrial stock, you might be kind of up at a 10 11 12% yield. Who knows? Primary stock much lower, maybe 6 7 8 but that's the trade-off. Um, so I think reality-wise, you, you will have money left in those deals. Okay, thank you, Daryl. So, Alex, I hope that answered your question, John. If you have any further follow-up questions, please add them in there. So, Alex, so your, your take, just to remind you, and we were just looking at the industrial sector, and I know if you've been modifying your act, your, your answers, as, you, as, as you've been getting the responses, uh, please um, add them in. Now pause, we do have a note from Brendan, confirm your rooms by 11 a.m. This is the most important thing. So Alex, please, over to you. Cheers, Aaron. Um, yeah, I think, I think the point from Kirsty on the, on the sale and leaseback point is, is a really good one. Um, I actually read a thought piece from uh, CBRE on that this morning, uh, which I think obviously where it has, uh, where it's beginning to be implemented in retail investments, that really is gonna kick forward into industrial, um, into the industrial sector. And I think that's going to also open the opportunity to um, developers um, to sort of approach businesses direct. Um, there's no reason why they shouldn't, um, uh, and see if see if there's any any um, any merit in in, in doing that. Um, just on so our role with industrial property, obviously we do look after a lot of industrial portfolios for um, clients, and they are mostly small sort of smaller starter units, like we've sort of been talking about. And they are mostly in sort of town centre tertiary or tertiary locations where um, where you do get your yeah the more traditional businesses are i.e. smaller e-commerce businesses um, manufacturing um, and MOT garages um, and the beauty of the the way you would set up industrial investment is obviously you get a tenant in you get them on a FRI term and then your maintenance costs are low or zero throughout that term um, obviously it will be covered within the lease for you to do a dilapidation schedule. Um, which you can then um, charge back on the tenant. So really, your maintenance costs are minimal because obviously the service charge and the and the actual estate um, costs will be covered in within the service charge. So um, that's one of the really attractive um, parts of an industrial. Um, and there's also quite relaxed planning permissions and developments on industrial properties as well. I mean, you can extend um, quite generously um, on 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 existing buildings. Um, you can also make sort of installed mezzanines offices within the industrial units which really allows the flexibility to cover more more businesses than what you would usually think would go into an industrial building um so yeah so it's, it, it generally it's it's a really flexible flexible sector 
Fantastic, Alex. So thank you. And it's, it's almost like you're reading my mind, which I wanted to roll into. So rolling back uh, through, uh, through the questions. So first of all, I just want to add a question to just note it's adding value to industrial property, uh, where uh, this is a question from Louise. And is it like commercial where a lot of value is derived from the quality of the tenant? You have sort of addressed that. Uh, in your answer, having said that, there will be a chance to add to that shortly. But what I really wanted to to ask you was looking at the planning. Now, I'd read somewhere that each house requires about 67 square foot um, to to meet their needs in the last mile. Now, when you you mentioned planning there, just wondering, a lot of the focus around industrial for our end of the market has been how we take industrial units, uh, how we how we use uh, permitted development more on the residential side or as Daryl mentioned, uh, mixing it up with retail. Looking forward, where do you see uh, planning policy and the opportunities for investors to actually start to look at the merging of planning policy and looking at some of the master plans to be able to create pockets of opportunity to service that last mile? So Alex, I'll, I'll leave this with you to start. Um, yeah, so uh, the sort of the, the currently as part of the permitted development rights, they they did bring in that you could convert. This would be an, an additional um, sort of option if you bought industrial property that there you can convert to residential. You can convert to C three under permitted developments, albeit there there is um, a lot of restrictions there. And to be honest, a lot of the time that isn't going to work practically because you're going to be they're going to be in the middle of industrial state or in a not very desirable area. Um, but the the, on, on the other permitted development rights, obviously you can, I think it's about 100 or 200 square meters you can add to a, to an industrial building. I think it's 100 square meters if you're within a designated area and then 200 if you're outside of a conservation area. Um, don't hold me to that, but um, I think that's sort of the sort of numbers we're talking. So it's pretty considerable gains, really. Um, and sort of, as I said, pre, as I said before, it's, the, the buildings are so flexible themselves. If, if you find an industrial shell, um, because they literally it's just a tin shed really most of the time still frame and just tin shed um, and you can build um, a, you can take up to sort of 75% of the floor space with offices and, and on a mezzanine floor um, and, and obviously that would drive your rent up rent up as well um, so yeah I, th I think that also the other thing that's going to push industrial more as well is the fact that as retail yields are going to are going to fall and and retail requirements are going to fall, people are going to look to reposition their retail investments and start to convert upper parts of res, uh, retail units um, back the sort of the rear 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 elements of retail ground floor retail units to make a smaller sort of retail frontage, and that's then going to drive um, drive sort of more desire into the industrial market and the fact that you're going to need bigger sort of more space to store goods for e-commerce. You're muted, mate. <laughs> oh, look, can, can I can I just say something? Darryl, so, uh, Daryl, so, so okay. yes, you can. Look, you 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 saw that uh, Alex was uh, busy getting a phone call, I think, on, on that conversation, um, and that's the joy. Confession, com confession. It was me. So that's why I muted myself. I, I was going to say that's the joys of being an exhibitor at a commercial summit. So that's just a, a little bit of a oh, plug. Sorry, sorry Brendan. <laughs> so you, you spoiled that plug. 
Aaron. Um, I, I'm sorry. So look, I, I'll mute myself again. Um, just, just before I mute myself, five less than five minutes to go before I'm going to close the allocations um, into the meeting rooms, breakout rooms. So five minutes. Can I just ask you to keep that chat box free for the next five minutes? So just want to allocate you into the rooms that you want to go into. So please keep that chat box free for the next five minutes. Um, and then can we just do a quick recap of the rooms? And it, it, it's fine. I could, I could go through, through the rooms. So the very first room is uh, funding and legal. legal. And I've act, they've all, just all escaped me. So Brendan, can you take it from here? I've just totally forgotten every other room. <laughs> Brendan? Okay, I think, I, think, I think the rooms have forgotten Brendan. So first one is funding and legal. The second one is alternative funding with uh, Crowd With Us. The third is design and surveying. So we've got Ben and we've got Alex Hearn in that. The fourth one is trading strategies with the Jedi J. Howard. Uh, the fifth is creative deals um, with the model Jack Jiggins. The sixth is landlord management <laughs> with, with James Pickup Connections. So if you do have a portfolio and you are looking to optimize it, stay legal, stay compliant. Uh, Connection have been a great sponsor over the years. Seven is commercial. So I will be going in there with Kirsty, with Susie and with anyone else who wants to join and we will be chewing the fat over a lot. And uh, the eighth is marketing with Andy Bartry. If you want to present yourself uh, properly, present yourself to the lenders, present yourselves to attract funding, please join us in room eight, Andy Bartry. This is a brand new room for Monday. So those are the rooms. So I just, I just ask people to keep that uh, chat box quiet until 11 o'clock. So just about the rooms, nothing else. Thank you very much, Brendan. Welcome back. So I will... Um, was I on Daryl? Daryl, was I on you? I know Kirsty and Susie, it's been a while, but we're coming back down. So Daryl, do you want to take it from there? Because I don't remember where we were, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Daryl? <laughs> yeah, that's all good. Um, so first thing today is just to comment on um, one of the questions in the chat box around um, adding value to commercial property. So I think it's absolutely right that part of the value is attributed to the lease. But my, my word of caution on that is just really where you add value to, to industrial property, creating more value in the space. So things like mezzanine floors, things like making it kind of more, more practical, more efficient for a business or an occupier to come in and, and, and maximize it and get the most out of it. Things like obviously making buildings bigger, making the building more modern, all these kinds of things, they do add value. What doesn't add value, and I sometimes have kind of seen some misconceptions out there, is just getting a good deal on the lease. So if you happen to be lucky enough to find a tenant who'll pay well over market rent for the property, doesn't really add much value to it because it's not sustainable. Because when that, tenant, that lease comes to an end, as a lender, I'm going to be thinking, well, it's fantastic, they've got a great deal. They're probably not going to get one again, though, and it's going to go back to whatever the market, market rate would be. And then the other thing I would just sort of mention on leases, and this is true for all commercial property, is that the lease doesn't necessarily add much intrinsic value to the property. Now, a lot of this depends on the interpretation of the eye of the beholder, really. But, you know, if you've got a lease out to a local covenant, so, you know, a small business running an MOT garage, for instance, that's got no trading history, but, you know, you're happy with it because you know it's a good guy, you know they've been going for a while and, you know, you're kind of happy that they're a safe bet. That's fine. 
those sorts of things are where you get the best yield generally, but they don't really add much value to the property in terms of the lease because if I was going to sell that property, someone looking to buy it is going to be a bit nervous around how secure that income is. Whereas if you've got a long lease out with no break to a big corporate with a huge balance sheet, someone probably will pay a premium for that because they're basically buying the right to collect that income essentially. So in the kind of big world of industrial property where your tenants might be Amazon or the supermarkets and this kind of stuff, all of the, the value of the lease is absolutely key um, because the perception of the market is that the security of that income is really good. So the better the income is, the more they want to pay you to get it. In the kind of secondary and tertiary bits, which is kind of more where my experience lies for my kind of smaller investor and developer, that's less true. So really, I think the value is less about the lease and more about the intrinsic market value of the space and then kind of my rationale for looking at those deals has always been look if the tenant fails or goes bust that's just part of life in that market so we rely on you guys as investors to go out and just find another tenant effectively so it's more about the building than it is the lease for me in the kind of smaller deals fantastic daryl so on that point so kirsty yeah well that's interesting because i kind of have i Hmm. I have some opposite points of view there, but it, I guess it depends oh, on what you're doing. This is, um, what, this is what, what I love. Well, <laughs> but one of the best ways to add value is to buy vacant or part vacant industrial property. Um, so yeah, if you're buying a tenanted investment, um, a lot of the value, value is tied up in the lease, but yeah, adding value is difficult unless... Um, you're buying it with asset management opportunities. So what I mean by that, this is what I do. So I buy property with asset management opportunities. That does not mean physical building work. I'm allergic to it. And in the commercial space, there are lots of ways to add value without doing any physical building work. Also, a lot of your commercial tenants have very specific requirements for how they want to use a space. So if you go in and create a mezzanine, you can guarantee that they're going to rip it down and rebuild it. So you kind of waste, waste your own money. But yes, I agree that mezzanines, et cetera, do add value, but you want to work with the tenant um, to do that when you sign them up rather than actually doing it before they take the unit. Um, but adding value is all about well, where are the rents at the moment? So I'm looking at several multi-let industrial parks, as I said, with units between one and 5,000 square feet at the moment. Um, some of them have got short leases. So the ways to add value is to increase the length of the lease. So if you buy an industrial investment and there's only two, three years left on the lease, and then you renew that lease for another 10 years, then you are going to add value that way. If you buy an industrial development with part vacant space, you are going to be able to add value by tenanting that space. Just tenanting that space is going to add value to that investment because obviously you've increased the rent roll. Um, increase the security of the investment you don't need to do any physical works to add value um, you can look also for a lot of industrial parks are quite spacious they've got a lot of space and there is room to add another unit so you want to be buying industrial in strong locations where there is high demand and then if your tenant does go bump it doesn't matter because there's another one that comes along really quite quickly most of the time as long as you're you're in the right location um, and some of the industrial, small industrial parks I'm looking at at the moment, industrial rents have risen quite significantly in the last 10 years. So I've got some industrial tenants who took, uh, their last rent review was five years ago, and they are currently paying 
four pounds a square foot, but today's market rent is six pound fifty. So I've got a nice value add there. So that's what you need to look for. You need to look for short leases. You need to look for lease events, basically. So where have the rents been going up and tenants are either coming up for lease renewal or they're coming up with a rent review and you've got an opportunity to add value by increasing those rents. But yeah, tenant covenant is really important. Daryl's right about that. And at the smaller end of the market, the tenant covenants are going to be a lot weaker. Um, so your value isn't really tied up in the tenant covenant it can still be tied up in the length of the lease. So obviously a 10-year lease is much more valuable from a capital value perspective than a two-year lease. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my <laughs> So I mean, what uh, the to, to sort of bottom, bottom line that the value is made again, which is uh, something that we always say when you, when you buy. So looking at vacant and part vacant, and, and being able to hold on to it long enough to increase the length of the lease and also in a growing market. So this is a market with high and growing demand. Again, location, location, location uh, is also uh, important here. At this point, I just also want to have a uh, forward, uh, forward looking into a couple of things. We have Gavin Halleca, who's going to be here, I think on the 4th of May. Brendan will correct me if that's not the case. So I, I press on. And we also have a, a shout out to uh, Richard Bowser, who in the latest edition of the Property Investor News in May, coming in May, it's going to have the latest trends on data and logistics. So make sure you connect. So I'll put this, this same uh, question to Susie responding to what you have heard. I also just want you to put in a note as to what's currently going on in terms of uh, rent collections and what's going on in terms of sales that have already been agreed. It is almost rolling into Kirstie's point about having these big guys, uh, big companies and big corporates in who tend to, at periods like this, they have shown, uh, be a little bit more bullish and belligerent about not paying their rent. So Susie, I don't know what you're getting from your clients and uh, I just want you to comment on the conversation we've had so far, Susie. Yeah, sure. So addressing that, first of all, then, um, so you're absolutely spot on. It is the big guys that are definitely more belligerent just because they can. What they'll do is they'll um, basically speak to their major landlords who are the you know pension funds and um, investment trusts and, and um, kind of big landlords. And, and they'll basically come to some deal with them. But what that means is that all the other investors they're dealing with, all the individual investors don't, you know, we don't really have a say. So what I would kind of say at this time, as I've kind of said to everybody with regard to any type of commercial property, talk to your tenants at the earliest possible um, kind of occasion. Um, the smaller um, retailers, office operators and industrial operators are the ones who are really trying to pay their rent. So last quarter paid their rent. Um, whether they'll have the ability to do so going forwards is, um, you know, is a, is a question. It depends how, how, how long lockdowns um, kind of carries on for. So I would very much recommend kind of speaking to your um, tenants, asking for their cash flow forecasts. Um, 
just kind of work with them to see you know, if you need to put them on a payment plan, um, if you think they've got a sustainable business, which you know, we might move from quarterly to monthly rents perhaps. Um, but obviously don't do that if you're backing, backing a kind of a falling horse. So you, know, you need to make sure that um, there's a sustainable business. You don't want to be the one who loses out on the, on the cash if, if you know, everyone else is, is demanding to get paid. Um, obviously there are ways and means to, to get money from, from tenants. Um, you, know, you can send the bailiffs in, et cetera. But I would, you know, I'd recommend, really recommend working with your tenants at this point. So um, in terms of a few of the other points that um, other people made, I think there's, there's, a, there's a few just additional things I'd like to throw in. First one is that um, industrial was, a, you know, especially logistics, was, was a strong sector. And it's, it's worth noting that logistics isn't just big distribution sheds, as, as um, Aaron said earlier. It, it, it is the kind of small last mile delivery. And that is the most important part of the supply chain. Well, not important part, but the most expensive, actually, in that, um, you know, when you're dealing with local supply supply chain, you know, where the Amazon drivers go to, with their white vans to pick up the kind of individual parcels, you're looking at kind of lots of congestion, you look at land, high land prices, etc. And and that is the bit of supply chain that, that um, all these companies have struggled with. And I see that as a fantastic opportunity. I have done for quite a long time. Um, for smaller smaller investors, um, because coupled with that, um, there um, I think land planning by local authorities is really behind the curve when it comes to industrial. Um, if you look at kind of the emerging local plans coming forward from local authorities, they haven't really quite caught up with the fact that probably more industrial is going to be needed going forwards, especially for this last mile type delivery. But what that does mean is the industrial that is in a town or a village or a city or whatever um, is actually, you know, in, in, as a kind of longer term investment is going to attract some good land values, you know, because of because of its scarcity value. And I think the third point I just wanted to lob in there is that um, I think that post COVID, I mean, goodness knows who, who knows what's going to happen, but I've got to got some predictions for the industrial sector. Um, I, I, Kirstie's bang on. I think that everyone's going to be trying to pile money into industrial sector from a kind of um, pension fund corporate level. Um, and they ought to be fair, they kind of were before. So I think this is going to move their, their allocation. But also I think that, um, I think that companies will be looking at their supply chain now and saying, God, I, I, I need to, first of all, I need to have multiple supply chains, um, you know to rely on and and second I think there's gonna be a lot more domestic supply chain so there's gonna be a lot more need from companies of whatever type to have a supply chain either based in the UK or very close to the UK so that this doesn't happen again because I think a lot of companies could have carried on trading if they did they had more of a domestic supply chain what that means is with the aid of government startup funding etc um, post recovery is there's very likely to be a lot more operators potentially out there and I'm not kind of guaranteeing this but I would suspect that there'll be more operators um, just just from the huge swell of demand for supply chain so industrial you know industrial could be quite an interesting sector from that perspective moving forwards. Fantastic Susie and um... And this is such a wide uh, range of sectors and opportunities. And I just wanted to home in on a couple of things, especially regarding the supply chain. Now, at this level, we probably won't really be dealing with a lot of the onshoring and the opportunities that onshoring is going to present moving forward. Um, but again, this is something that people started to look at um, as part of the big Brexit, which just won't escape us. I mean, we're going into May and we're still mentioning Brexit. And so... Just I'll be I'll be asking you specifically as to how we can transition from a lot of us being residential investors and or 
or, or developers who mainly our focus around industrial has been converting industrial and taking it into the residential sector where we're comfortable with. Now, I just want to just quickly uh, pause here and uh, I just wanted to speak about right sizing, uh, which is some uh, question that's come in, which Kirsty has, has, has answered. Um, I'll quickly go back to Kirsty, who's got to leave in 10 minutes. So I just want, I'm just going to ask her if she's got any comments for you, Susie, and then we'll, we'll just change the order a little bit uh, to take uh, into account. So thank you again uh, for your contribution. So uh, Kirsty. Yeah, well, I was, I was answering um, John Ray's question, really, which is, can, can you add value by um, splitting larger units into smaller units? Yeah, that's absolutely another asset management trick um, to add value. But it all depends on the demand in that location. So quite often you can pick up um, industrial parks that are a bit behind the times because they haven't been very well actively managed. Um, and you've got lots of big units, but actually the demand in that location is coming more from your medium size operators and it's really easy to split industrial units um, a lot easier than it is splitting residential property um, and a lot cheaper um, as well and again you wouldn't do it before you found the tenant so the thing is you find the tenant first and then you create the space that they want um, so you know you, you split the units according to where where the demand is and you at least find one or two tenants who want specific amounts of space before you before you split it up um, so yeah right sizing is what I call it um, are the units the right size for today's market? Because as Susie says, and I totally agree with her, I think there's going to be a lot of new entrants into the market because a lot of businesses have had a big shock with COVID. Not only COVID, but Brexit before that, they were already thinking about it. So St Modwin, for example, when I was doing some work with them last year, their construction team stockpiled 12 months worth of construction materials, but they needed somewhere to store it. So they couldn't let out quite a few of their industrial units because they had to use them for their own storage because they stockpiled and then what they're doing is changing their procurement going forward to use as many UK suppliers as possible because they don't want to be in a position where things like Brexit or now Covid can put you in the position where you have to stop. Um, so it, it is a really really good point that Susie made. Fantastic. Right yeah. So Kirsty I'm aware you have to go so I'm just going yeah. to start the final round of questions with you. Before I go on to that final round of questions, I just want to uh, put out a couple of shout outs. We've got Paul Pinder from um, Ronald Fletcher Baker, who's one of the sponsors. We did speak about contracts and current disputes that are coming on with some of the big, the big boys and girls. It's 2020, got to be uh, politically correct. Uh, throwing their weight around. Uh, if you do have any contract uh, disputes or anything around your clients, please, uh, his details are in there and he'll also be in room one. We also have Ben Richards from Aura, and um, who, who's dealing with currently industrial units and planning and interacting with the planning. So he will also be in, in, uh, well, in room three. So please make sure together with Alex Hearn. So Kirsty, as we go in, I'm gonna start with Kirsty and then I'm going to go on to Susie. Uh, Jay Howard, please stop making me laugh. And, um, and uh, so just a couple of questions. I include everyone. This is a very inclusive breakfast and I'm not sure planning will be happy with you storing oil right now. So that's uh, just to deal with a couple of questions. So Kirsty, and uh, in terms of the opportunities looking forward, I just want you to address how you think the opportunities are for the 
nominally retail investor and developer, how they actually go from doing what they're doing now, which is probably, you know, developing a few units or doing buy to let, how they actually, where they get into the sector and what the opportunities are that people can take care. So that will go from Kirsty to Susie, then I'll go back to Daryl and Alex. So Kirsty. The answer to most things in commercial investing, when people say, how do I find it? How do I upskill myself? Who do I work with? And I'm not just saying this, and Susie will laugh when I say this as well. I'm not just saying this because we are commercial surveyors, but the answer to most questions are local commercial surveyors. So your relationships with local commercial surveyors are absolutely key to investing in any form of commercial. So about 50% of commercial property never comes to market. It might be on the market, but it will be on the market with surveyors. And they will just put it out to their investors. It will never hit the open market. So you're missing a lot of the opportunities if you're not working with your commercial surveyors. Also, the other thing that people don't seem to realize that you can do is you can just instruct a surveyor to acquire on your behalf. So if you want to get into a new sector and it's not something that you've invested in before and you want the security of professional advice, a professionally qualified surveyor, pay them to find you what you're looking for. So you go to them with your criteria, you say, I want to pivot some of my investment portfolio into industrial, never invested in industrial before. This is, this is the yield I'm looking for. This is the rent return I'm looking for. This is how much I've got to invest. I want you to go and find me some investments and just work with them and you'll learn by doing. Um, now, obviously, also get involved in the, in the commercial property press. Um, and if it's something that you think you want to focus on going forward, then, you know, do some training with someone who's got the experience or get mentored if you want to get started. Um, you, you know, my, my quick route to do anything in investing for myself or setting up businesses, um, I'm scaling businesses at the moment, is to pay a mentor who knows how to do what I do. Um, and I think that's a good way to go. There'll be so many opportunities coming through. Like I said, I think occupiers will be putting units on the market to do sale and leasebacks. There are already um, lots of multi-let industrial parks on the market um, where people are churning um, investments. A lot of um, commercial investors are quite lazy. They don't want to do the asset management. So when the leases start to run down, they think, oh, I can't be bothered with all this. But that's a massive opportunity if you know how to add the value by asset managing. Fantastic. So Kirsty might not be with us. So please just, can we just give her a wave and a virtual uh, clap as she has to go? So there are a couple of uh, things that go in that everyone, anyone can pick up. We've got approximately 12 minutes, which is three minutes each for Susie, for Alex, for Daryl. So a couple of questions, what kind of budgets and what are Kirsty's normally fee, normal fees? I put Kirsty's details in there so you can contact her directly to ask these uh, questions. So, uh, same question to you, Susie. Uh, what are the opportunities? What is it going forward? And how can people get involved? So you've got about three minutes, and let's go. Can I just uh, say oh. before that? Sorry, Susie. Um, sorry, Susie. Um, someone is tapping on their mouse. It's not me because I'm mute. I'm busy allocating you into rooms. Um, I don't want to. Uh, sort of like, what's that? Philip Chambers. Philip, um, can was. I just? It was. Was okay. Can I just ask you all to be on mute, unless otherwise, um, sort of like being uh, recorded. Um, the other thing to add, we're going to hear from Richard Bowser. Delighted. We got property investor news. 
Um, not sure how that I'm muted. Don't worry, Philip. There's lots of things on 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 Zoom. It's all so, the experience. I'll we'll hand over to Richard. you. So, Brendan, what we're going to do is we're going to answer the questions, and just before we go into the rooms, we're going to hear from Richard because what Richard has for the next edition is relevant. So, I just want the panelists to answer the questions, and then we'll hear from Richard, and then we'll break into the room. So, uh, and we're, we're going to, to hear. You, Susie. Sorry, Aaron. We're also going to hear from James Pick, one of our sponsors as well. So. Um, brilliant. Right. Um, so in terms of getting started, um, obviously, um, make sure that you've got the right, right team on board. I totally endorse what Kirsty said in terms of um, commercial property agents. They are really important. Um, and, you know, it's very normal practice in the commercial property world to have an agent acting on your behalf because they can advise on rents, lease, tenants, etc. But um, make sure you've got a good broker who can kind of advise you on kind of your amount of leverage um, and, and a good commercial property um, lawyer. And then really start looking for local opportunities, you know. Uh, as, as we've kind of kind of reiterated, industrial opportunities don't need to be big stuff. They can be a small motor dealership where the kind of the planning is worth its weight in gold because you can't get that very often in local areas. Um, you know, it could be um, kind of two or three industrial units clustered together where you think you might be able to get a bit more on a site or, you know, the mezzanine floor going in. So you kind of, you know, it can be kind of quite small scale. The other thing to note is that if there are more sale and leaseback opportunities, I mean, commercial agents is definitely the best way route to market. But, um, you know, how about trying some direct mail to your local industrial estates to see, see if they own the properties, you know, see, see if you can get the sale and leasebacks that way. Um, you, but you're the agents, again, will know about kind of the, the owners of property and will be able to kind of point you in that direction. And the other thing to say is that um, there will be a lot of investors who will have breached their loan to value covenants um, during this time and will be either working with the banks or will be kind of, you know, looking to offload their product. So to position yourself financially with your kind of with your team behind you in terms of knowing knowing how you can leverage the money you've got will be really important so you can move quickly um, and look, look at the opportunities. Oh, thank you very much, Susie. So Susie, I just want you to just quickly come back because someone asked what kind of budgets um, should you be looking at for that, which I'll get you to start and Daryl to take over. Yeah, so I mean, it's kind of a little bit like asking kind of how long's a piece of string. So um, obviously, if you're looking for a small kind of car repair garage um, in a local area, you might be looking at a couple of hundred grand, you know, kind of to, you know, pretty, pretty cheap, especially if it's kind of quite ramshackle, but it's got a really valuable planning consent. And obviously you kind of, you can be going up, you know, up. So I kind of, what I'm passionate about is kind of saying to people that commercial property doesn't need to be at kind of crazy prices. Now, it is true to say that industrial units um, quite often are probably more, well, are a lot more expensive than your small retail units, entry prices, which can be, you know, 80 to 100 grand at the bottom end. Um, but you, you could be starting at kind of, quarter of a million up I would say. Fantastic so thank you very much Susie. Uh, so obviously we'll be joining Susie, Susie will be joining us in room seven. So Daryl and you have less time I can see Brendan uh, so please could you just take up where the future is and how people can get funded and any other comments from the comments. Yeah so just very Darryl? quick on leverage and um, there are still plenty of commercial investment mortgage products out there, but it is one of the bits of the market that's probably suffered um, from the, you know, from quite a bit of change and um, 
almost reining in of a bit of risk appetite during the coronavirus period. And that's just because the perception is that the outlook for business and the economy in general is just so uncertain. And obviously that underpins pretty much everything in, in all commercial sectors. And a lot of the stuff we're talking to today about today around a lot of the positives that we can see in industrial, there will also be some dangers. So there will also be some, um, some businesses that occupy industrial property that, that struggle. And so the lenders are still kind of getting their heads around being able to tell the difference between what a safe deal is and what a, um, and what a kind of uh, risky deal might be. So um, generally speaking, leverage wise, you're kind of looking at um, anything from kind of 50 to 70% loan to value generally, with a lot more products limited to around 60% at the moment. And the absolutely critical thing on leverage that I would say most people um, miss when they first come in is the difference between a market value and a vacant possession value. So a market value is the benefit of the building with the lease. The high street banks tend to lend on that, but at very conservative loan to values, close to the 50s. And the vacant possession is the bricks and mortar value of the building, i.e. what's it just worth on the open market as a tenanted property or a vacant property that would be tenanted. Um, that's what the challenger banks lend on. So a lot of the um, sort of 70% loan to value products are based on that vacant possession value which depending on the lease covenant will be lower. So if you've got a really grade A um, blue chip tenant in there, the vacant possession value is lower than the market value, sometimes by kind of 10, 20%. If it's got weak tenant, tenants or no tenants, then there might not be much difference at all. So just a quick word on, on leverage. And then just finish very, very quickly on opportunities. I would start thinking about almost kind of traffic lighting different bits to the market. So for me, anything linked to e-commerce is probably green probably good stuff to be looking at, good potential to grow. Anything linked to kind of cars is probably amber. So we've seen obviously a massive tail off in the amount of people on the roads at the moment. What's the long-term impact of that? Does it accelerate changes around electric vehicles and these kind of things? So I wouldn't discount it, but I'd be kind of just cautious around it. And then anything linked to um, kind of big retail, so maybe clothing and that kind of stuff, I'd probably put in my, my red camp to it to, to a certain extent. If you're supplying Debenhams, House of Fraser, John Lewis and Co, your outlook may not be as positive as it was before this crisis, um, notwithstanding all the changes that are happening in retail anyway. So that, that's what I would kind of say. And then I'd also say don't discount those red opportunities because they're probably the best opportunities to add value in many ways by either reorientating towards a different type of tenant or potentially developing. So uh, in summary, we should jump a few red lights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like that. No, I mean, there's a whole lot more to it. I'll, get, I'll let Alex, uh, Alex speak and then we, we'll, we will have Richard Bowser and we'll have James Pick. I'll have a quick, su uh, quick uh, summary and, um, and uh, here, here we go. So, please, so Alex, and if you take us there. Yeah, cheers, Alex. Um, yeah, I think that's been pretty well um, summed up there by... Um, everyone, but I just wanted to add a little point on um, adding value. Um, one of my clients in Southampton, uh, Associated British Ports, who own a vast amount of industrial property, they've actually added a lot of value on their portfolio over the last sort of 18 months by rentalizing open storage areas um, outside of the industrial units. So, where this areas can be made safe, fenced, um, and secure, obviously, the, you can rentalize these and that, that can add a fair bit of value to. To your portfolio or property, um, and yeah, I think I think it's, again, it's key without about trying to get um, the surveying market more work. I think that really it's um, it's crucial if you want to get into the sector to speak to your local 
local industrial agents, likes of Lambert Smith, Hampton, Jones Lang, and they're all very present around around my area because um, they will also have the occupants requirements. So uh, the, the sooner you strike up relationships with these guys, um, they, they they'll be help be able to help you from acquisition um, or buying a buying a pro property as well as acquisition of a tenant. So yeah, fantastic. So just a just a quick note to that so alex will be in one of the rooms further so this is also one of the things that jack will be talk, uh, talking about in the new uh, creative trading room now just before we go i'd want to bring in uh, a bit of a highlight we've got richard browser we've got james pick uh, one of our sponsors and we also have gavin Callagher who's coming in uh, next week so he owns one of the largest office parks in the whole of europe and uh, if you heard him at the commercial summit i'm sure on you know in his in his estate, he'll probably have a mix of probably light industrial office, uh, maybe even manufacturing, but who knows? So the first person I'd want to bring in would be uh, James Pick. Brendan, would that be correct? Brendan, you're muted, Brendan. Brendan, you're muted. James isn't, though. So, Brendan. Okay, so is it Richard Bowser? We're going to bring in first. You've muted yourself again, Brendan. Okay, so Richard. James. Oh, me. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah. Morning. 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 Hello. Is it Richard or me? Let, let's go okay. for James first. So that's be easier. JR <laughs> rather than RJ. Hey. hey um, hi, everyone. So I'm James from uh, Connection. Sorry, Richard. I'm going to push you back. Um, but I'm sure you've got far greater words of wisdom uh, um, <laughs> than, uh, <laughs> than me. Hey, um, so firstly, um, it's great to sponsor uh, the, these events. It's really good to see um, how Brendan pulling everybody together um, at a time when... Uh, um, keeping up and uh, staying connected uh, is imperative. Um, so thanks for running them, uh, um, Brendan. Um, and uh, yeah, continue to look forward to support. Um, I'm also going to pick up, um, um, before I go into uh, um, connection itself, um, uh, what uh, Richard was saying at the beginning um, on, on motivation and just generally staying on top. Um, I, it, it's, it's absolutely imperative at this time. Uh, we're all going through it in different ways. Um, and um, connections no different. We, we have our, our software, we need our team to be managing our customers um, and uh, a lot of my, uh, my support team, my development team are all based in India uh, and so they've all been uh, um, in lockdown themselves um, and, and it's as important uh, when you're looking at your business from continuity to, to ensure that the, the health and well-being of your staff of course um, and that's not always necessarily those um, that you talk to every day or, or, um, um, or even if you talk to them every day, they're not necessarily in the same location. Uh, and it's been an absolutely huge uh, change for, uh, for my team uh, based in India. Uh, and we've, um, we, we've done our best to, to kind of manage that. Um, our, we increased the number of uh, talking sessions we have um, by the likes of Zoom uh, and otherwise. It's, it's a technology that we've used for a long, long time, but uh, now more than ever. Um, we also uh, changed the way we worked, actually, just to make it a little bit more enforced and um, dynamic. So we, uh, we, we started some, um, well, we call them hackathons, um, and uh, we, we got the guys to cherry pick customer, various customer feedbacks. Um, and so what, what, what would you like to resolve? Rather than looking at our core pipeline, can you justify what you like, what you saw? Uh, and it's had a huge response. So really just shaking up the, the, the way that you, you work with your teams across your teams. Uh, don't underestimate how much uh, this is going to impact uh, in, in, and in so many different ways. 
Um, so other thing that Richard talked about were goals. Um, goals are really interesting. Um, we, we all have long-term goals and we've got objectives, but actually sometimes it's, it's, it's really better to, to tighten them up and shorten them right back down so that you can get from one day to the next and one month to the next. So make, make sure those goals are, 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 are um, I suppose, hierarchical so that they get to your end product. Um, but they very much, um, that you, you're putting them into package that you can feel that you can achieve. Uh, and something else, uh, Richard uh, also mentioned at the beginning uh, about uh, each new. Um, I think each new game is a new game. Don't let the last game impact your your next. Um, I think that serves equally well uh, um, for us. I always talk about every day is a new day with our team. Uh, if they come with challenges, if I've uh, if we've had problems even with team members, every every day is fresh, and you've got a new opportunity to achieve it. And in the property side, I'm an enormous believer in sunk costs. Um, don't, don't be emotionally constrained by the, 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 the costs that you put in yesterday. Make sure the net present value of tomorrow or uh, of your current deal is still valid. Um, sometimes you've, you've got to look for alternative exits. Uh, and Jay Howard always talks about uh, exits. Uh, for me, that, uh, that directly relates to considering the sunk costs or ignoring them. So why, why have I not spoken about connection? Um, it's actually one of Brendan's real key things that he doesn't want to, uh, to make this all about an upsell. Um, and uh, th that's uh, ultimately um, the, why I keep it quiet. But um, connection is a, um, a, a software solution to help manage uh, the lettings portfolio, whether you're an agent or whether you're a landlord. Um, and um, actually, if you're struggling now with the communication across your team as you're all working in different places, it's exactly where connection was designed to fit. Uh, we took experiences from big um, corporate organizations using strong CRM solutions uh, to ensure the, the, um, the easy interlinking between your team members and the communication with your tenants and, uh, uh, and landlords or, or other stakeholders. Uh, so CRM tools, technologies really drive value at this, these moments where you're all working in different places but need to be um, working together on similar type projects. So connection, um, if you have a lettings portfolio, uh, whether you're an agent or a landlord, I'm more than happy in the, uh, the room to talk about that and how, um, how whether it's the, the gas safety that needs to be done, the, the payment of the tenant that needs to be managed, um, or, or any form of communication with, uh, with third parties, all, all managed within, uh, within the connection solution. Uh, join me if you've got a preferred other room, then ping me a note on the uh, the group. I'm happy to uh, set up a, um, a session uh, at any other stage as well uh, and take you through the solution. Fantastic. Thank you very much, James. So we'll just quickly hear from uh, Richard Bowser before we go into the rooms and, and probably a quick note from Gavin Gallagher. So Richard, are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, so Richard, just a, a, a brief note about yeah, what's going yeah, on. Yeah, short and sharp. Uh, yeah, good morning, everybody. It's Richard Bowser, editor of Property Investor News. Thanks, Aaron. And, and also, Brendan, well done, guys. It's been really useful to, to chip in this morning um, and, and listen to some really good content being delivered. Um, so, um, Property Investor News, probably most of you know us about us anyway. The latest magazine, here we are. Ranjit is on the call. So, uh, if anyone's interested, go by Ranjit. Um, just um, in the latest magazine, which was the April magazine, uh, the first subhead said, the mother of all black swans, that's referring to COVID. Uh, it's come out of the blue and it's hit us pretty hard and we all know that. Um, referring to what we're discussing here today, uh, the lead article in the April magazine was on commercial property 
And in particular, I just want to quote a couple of comments which back up a lot of what's already being said. Um, so uh, discussing commercial property uh, investment outlook in the last month or so, we mentioned that uh, a second wind for e-commerce and for industrial property and half a dozen paragraphs on that, which of course, as editor, I noted, uh, and therefore in the May magazine that we'll be publishing in a few weeks time, um, the primary focus in that edition is on industrial and, and logistics, um, which we've covered on previous occasions, but of course, we are aware that there has been, has already been mentioned, a significant amount of interest and investment into logistics, e-commerce in particular, because of the whole Amazonization uh, of the retail sector. Uh, but I think what's happening with COVID and what we're seeing is definitely going to uh, uh, accelerate and is um, definitely going to lead to some significant sea changes in, in the way that we behave as consumers and how businesses react. I'm not going to say any more. Um, because, um, you know, there's plenty to get through and you've got your breakouts. Thanks for your time, guys. And Aaron and Brendan, really well done. It's been really good. Fantastic. Thank you very much. So just before we go into the breakout rooms, I was wondering, is Gavin, is Gavin on the call, Brendan? Did you say that? That's, that's, that's what I'm trying to find out. He is on the call, but um, Gavin, this is your... I'm on the call. Okay. 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 So Brett, Over Brendan to you, Gavin, for, for one minute. <laughs> Sorry, I was doing something else at the time, so I didn't hear what I was being lined up to do. Um, literally, just explain a little bit about yourself, those who've not come across you. You're on the panel next week, so there's lots of new people who've never come across my events. They've never heard of National Development Summit, never heard of Commercial Summit, didn't know I've been organizing events for the last decade, and think I've just arrived right now. Uh, zoomed in. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I've got a um, a haircut. Yeah, I got a big haircut there. It's like my COVID nineteen haircut. The um, uh, okay, so a little bit about me. I I run a business park in Dublin called East Point. East Point has um, been developed by myself and my family um, in the early nineties, and it's um, it's twenty uh, twenty five years on the go now. 40 acres of land, 37 office buildings. Normal In a normal uh, environment, we would have uh, about 9,000 people a day coming and going to the park for work. Um, at the moment, I would say we have about 50 people coming to the office park. Uh, COVID-19 has gotten pretty much every office, with the exception of Google, um, they're pretty much every office is closed at the moment. Google have some uh, critical operations going on in one or two parts of the park, so they're still going strong. But um, yeah, it's been we've been pretty badly hit for, and uh, so I'm watching that very carefully. And um, in terms of my outlook on things, I um, I'd be nervous about the situation, but I'm still looking at potential investment in innovation and prop tech and. Um, and things of that nature, because I think this is going to be an opportunity for certain investors that are sitting on cash. So, Gavin, I, I'm really delighted that you're going to be joining us next week, as I say, with um, the co-founder of, of Lenwell, the, part of the, the founder of Lenwell, Stephen Johnson, formerly from Shawbrook, Manish, everyone knows Man. I say everyone knows Man Manish, interesting haircut. Um, Invest like a pro. Uh, .co.uk. Um, 
maybe next week is all about haircuts so uh, <laughs> no no um so invest like a pro um manish gavin adam lawrence i'm just waiting for ross harper to confirm so it's more me sending out the message look i've tried my best to allocate you into the meeting rooms it, it's it's quite hard it's harder than you may imagine 